Ernest Gordon was a British military officer um, who spent some time in the infamous Japanese prison camp on the River Kwai during World War II. If you know anything about this particular prison camp, you know that the conditions there were horrific. Out of uh, about 60,000 men who were prisoners there, 19,000 of them died. 30% of the men in this prison camp died because of the terrible conditions. And in his book, To End All Wars, Gordon recounts um, late in the war, traveling through the jungles of Asia with other prisoners of war and happening upon a train full of wounded Japanese soldiers nearly dying of neglect. Well, Gordon and many of his fellow officers begin to administer aid to these soldiers, to their enemies. And one of the fellow officers was deeply offended by this and said, what bloody fools you are. Don't you realize that those are the enemy? And Gordon replied with a story. He said, have you never heard the story of a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho? He was attacked by thugs stripped of everything, left to die. Along came a priest, but he passed by the man. Along came a lawyer, a man of high principles. He also passed by. Next came a Samaritan, a half-chaste, a heretic, an enemy. But he didn't pass by. He stopped. His heart was filled with compassion And kneeling down, he poured some wine through the unconscious lips, cleaned and dressed the helpless man's wounds, then took him to an inn where he had him cared for at his own expense. To that, the officer responded in anger, that's different. That's the Bible. This is real life. These are the swine who have starved us and beaten us. They've murdered our comrades. These are our enemies. And Gordon looked at his fellow officer and said, who is my enemy? Isn't he my neighbor? Mine enemy is my neighbor. Who is your enemy? When I say the name enemy, does someone immediately pop to mind? Do you have an enemy? And would you be able to say that your enemy is your neighbor? Last week when we started this series, I encouraged all of us to read the story of the Good Samaritan every day this week, to just read it and just allow it to affect us. Because see, parables, which the Good Samaritan is, are simple stories meant to change the way the listener thinks and acts. And this simple story changed Ernest Gordon in ways that really seem impossible, Do you believe this simple story can change you like that? Has it changed you? Have you been reading it this week? Have you noticed anything different this week? Or do you even want to be changed like that? If you're like me, the answer is yes, kind of, no, maybe. I mean, it seems seems radical. It seems almost extreme, but it's also extremely hopeful. Because when you're reading this book by Gordon, it's clear that he didn't respond uh, like he did simply out of obedience, simply out of duty, simply out of obligation to do the right thing. He responded really out of who he was, who he had become 
through this story. Or, or maybe better, who he had become through the one who made up the story. So last week, we spent all of our time just looking at the story itself, allowing the story to be heard, hopefully in a fresh way. And today, I want us to look at the question that prompted Jesus to make up the story. And the next week, as we finish up the series, we're going to look at some of the practical instructions that we can gain from this story. Like, what does this story actually tell us about how we're to live our everyday lives? What does it tell us that we're actually called to, what we're supposed to do? And I know some of you are still dealing with that tension of kind of codependency and, and wanting to help and needing to help and being the right kind of help and not being help, um, you know, not helping in a way that's harmful. And so hopefully next week we'll get some more clarity on that. But today let's look at the question behind the story. So we're going to start in verse 25 of Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. On one occasion, one translation says, and behold, uh, it kind of makes a kind of dramatic beginning to this passage, and behold. And so whenever you come across anything in scripture with a statement like that, it's really good to go back and read what had just happened in the passage previous. Because when, when the author, when an author says, and behold, or, or an author says, on one occasion, they're trying to tell you something about the passage that they're about to write. They're saying, what I'm about to write to you illustrates what I've just been talking to you about. So it's good to kind of go back and read what came right before it. So if, and I encourage you to go back and kind of read that whole passage leading up to this passage. But essentially, the passage before talks about how Jesus is... Um, how he's rejoicing over the way in which his father has hidden the secrets of salvation from the wise, from the people who, who seem to be the types of people who would get it. And he's rejoicing instead that people that are unlikely, people who are childlike in their faith, they're the ones who get it. So when Luke writes, and behold, or on one occasion, he's letting us know that the story he's about to tell us illustrates this point, this point of childlike faith. So remember that, okay? Remember that it's important uh, that this story illustrates what it means to have faith. So going back to the story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit life? So there it is. That's the question that leads to the story of the Good Samaritan. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a pretty important question. It might be the most important question we could ask. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we're told that God has put eternity into every one of our hearts. So no matter what we believe, no matter what religion or culture we're from, we're all trying to figure out how we can live forever. So it's an important question. But what is the lawyer really asking with that question? Well, he's asking, Jesus, what are the requirements God has given me so that he will accept me and find favor with me? He's essentially saying, what did God build me for? What does it mean for me to be what God had in mind when he thought me up? And Jesus replies like this, verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. 
Do this and you will live. So the answer to what God has built us for is love. Love is the essence of what it means to be human. Love perfectly. All the lawyer had to do, all that any of us have to do to keep the two commandments is to love. To love God and to love our neighbor. So first to love God. What does that mean? Well, it means to give him what he has already given us, which is everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And it's really logical. Who, who gave you your heart? Who gave you your soul? Who gave you your strength? Who gave you your mind? Either you're a cosmic accident or God has given them to you. And if God has given you everything, then you owe him everything. So have you done that? A way to kind of self-examine yourself regarding this first commandment is by wrestling with this quote from Archbishop William Temple, which says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. What he means by that is when you don't have to think of anything else, what do you think of? When you're kind of free to kind of think about whatever you want to think about, what is it that you think of? That's what you've given your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind to. That's your God. That's your religion. So what is preeminent in your thoughts? What is the, the most important thing that you think about? What, is, what has the highest place in your heart? Is it your career? Is it a relationship? Is it your looks? Is it vacation? I know when I, when I don't have to think about anything, I start thinking about vacation and I start thinking about the places we could go, the things we could see, the experiences I could have with my family, how much longer uh, I have to earn points on my visa card so I can go back on the Disney cruise. Like that's kind of where my mind goes. So what is that for you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind means that nothing else comes first that nothing comes before God, nothing absorbs you, nothing delights you and your thoughts more than him. It means to love God 100% of the time with 100% of your thoughts. Now we all fail at that. Not a single one of us achieve that. But it doesn't change the fact that that's what we were built for. You and I were built to love God like that. In fact, life works best when you and I love God like that. So the second thing is to love your neighbor all the time. To love your neighbor with the same intense interest and constant care that we have for ourselves all the time. And, and we know whether we acknowledge God or not, this on kind of an instinctive level. We know that when we're experiencing and giving love, we feel the most human. That's when we feel the most alive. When we're not, either because we're being selfish or because we're being used by someone else, we tend to feel less human. We tend to feel less alive. So we know that the essence of what it means to be a human is love. I think part of our fascination with zombies um, is because of this. I think, uh, I think zombies show us the trajectory of our self-centered culture. A culture that is consumed by self-interest is definitely heading towards the real zombie apocalypse. And, and zombies are, are less human because they're selfish. Because a zombie is singularly focused on themselves. They, 
they only exist to feed on flesh. Now, I know that's a little bit of a silly illustration using zombies as an example, but think about how zombie-like you become when you are singularly focused on meeting your own needs. When what you want takes precedent over all else. When you stop seeing others, you lack empathy, and you don't care whom you hurt along the path of getting your desires met. Speaking of zombies, we took uh, a few days after Christmas and went to St. Augustine, and I was, um, I was extremely uh, exhausted and just, I could not wait to get rest. And, um, and really, when I had dreamed about this little mini vacation we took, uh, if I'm honest, I, I forgot to include my kids in that, my five kids in that dream. And so when I got there for at least the first two days of this four-day getaway, um, I was awful to them. I was awful to them because I had just been thinking about me. I had been singularly focused on me getting rest. I didn't think about how maybe my wife Kelly also needed rest, maybe more so than I did. I didn't think about the fact that uh, my kids don't get me to themselves a lot leading up to Christmas, and so maybe they were just looking forward to getting dad all to themselves. In fact, zombie would probably be the nicest thing I should have been called. We become zombie-like whenever we are singularly focused on meeting our own needs. And we can also become zombie-like in our social media. When we vilify people who think or voted differently than us, or maybe we just silence all the people who are different. See, on online, we can create communities of people who look and think just like us. Singularly focused on ourselves and our ideas, how often our Twitter and Facebook is nothing more than an echo chamber. But we weren't built for that. We were built to love our neighbor as ourself, which means we need to listen to them no matter how different they are than us. We need to hear them. We need to know them. We need to see them. As our president said this week in his farewell address, if you're tired of arguing with strangers over the internet, try talking to one of them in real life. That's actually really sound advice for avoiding the apocalypse. Um, thanks, Obama. Uh, we were built to love. We were built to love God and to love neighbors sacrificially all the time. It's that simple and basic. And in fact, there is absolutely no gray area here. Jesus looks at this lawyer and he says, do this and you'll live. That's it. So how does the lawyer respond? Does he say like we all should, oh, oh man, I failed at this. Oh, oh man, what can be done? Who will save me? There's no way I can love like that. No, he immediately looks for a gray area. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now let's think about this follow-up question. It assumes that some people fall into the category of non-neighbor. What he's essentially asking Jesus is, how can I spot those whom God has not chosen for me to love, who God doesn't want me to love? Now, my initial reaction to this question is to really judge this lawyer and think, what, what a fool this guy is. How could he miss it? But think about it. Obviously, we can't love everyone, that would be impossible. That would be kind of like loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
So, so it makes sense. If we can't love everyone sacrificially, there has to be a line somewhere. Just tell me where the line is, and surely it can be obtained if it's clearly defined. So where, where have you drawn? Where's your line? Where do you draw the boundary? Some of us draw boundaries along ethnic lines or religious lines. Maybe we do a really good job of loving each other inside this place, but not so much those who are on the outside. Sometimes we draw boundaries along social lines, or maybe we make a distinction between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Maybe we make a distinction between those who we think are getting what they deserve and those who just caught a bad break. Maybe we draw the line when someone's case just seems too hopeless. Maybe their problems are just too big. Again, remember the original question. The original question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me what I was built for. And the answer is to love my neighbor. So in order for us to do that, we feel like we have to limit our neighborhood. But it's at this point that Jesus stops this intellectual discussion and he just begins to tell the story. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And what does the story do? It redraws the boundaries of the neighborhood. Last week, I said that Jesus choosing the Samaritan shows us that, as the hero, shows us that Jesus isn't threatened by people who get religion or God wrong. In fact, it shows us that Jesus is constantly seeking and listening and inviting them in. In fact, he, he celebrates them. So with this unlikely hero, Jesus has made it clear that everyone is your neighbor, that there are no gray areas, that you cannot limit your neighborhood. As we say around here often, you've never locked eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. So who is my neighbor? Jesus says, everyone. That's it. No qualifications. Gordon was right. My enemy is my neighbor. When I first started here, um, which was almost four years ago, um, I talked about the population of our city and what the latest data said about Christianity and churches in our city. And there hasn't really been a lot of new data since that time, but, but I want to go over some of that information again, along with some new information that I was able to gather, because I think it helps paint a picture of the neighborhood that we find ourselves in. So in the greater Orlando area, there are about 1,600 churches. And in those 1,600 churches, 510,000 people say they are connected to one of those churches. So each of those little dots represents 10,000 people. So 510,000 people in our city are connected to one of the 1,600 churches in our city. Well, the population of our city is 2.3 million people. That means that almost 1.8 million people in our city aren't connected to a church. That's how many people aren't connected to any church that live right around the corner from us. Now, just because you don't go to church doesn't mean you aren't a Christian. Just like just because you go to church doesn't mean you are one. In fact, I kind of hope that some of you here aren't Christians. I, I really, I've been praying all week that that would be the case because if you're here that says that we're a welcoming place, that we're a safe place where you can wrestle with your spiritual questions without feeling the pressure of drinking the Kool-Aid. And so I am, I am hoping that you are here if you're not a Christian, that there are people here who aren't Christians. 
In fact, I want to, uh, this doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but I heard this story this week, and I, I just want to say, good job, Waterford. Um, at our Waterford campus this week, on Sunday in the, in the afternoon, a mom and a, and a son showed up um, around the time of surge, and they came in, and they ran into Gary Abbott there, and, and they said, hey, is there a youth group happening here? And they had never come to our church before. They had never set foot in a church service um, and she just, I think they're going through some stuff as a family. And she just said, I just heard this was a welcoming place. And so Waterford, I'm so glad that that's your reputation. I hope that's our reputation. But the fact that 1.8 million people in our city aren't connected to a church means that 78% of our city is not connected. Now, again, this doesn't mean they aren't Christians. And so we can't say that, but I think it tells us something very significant. I think it tells us something about, you know, look around and how many empty seats we have. And not just us, why there are empty seats at any church. Who could be in that empty seat next to you? In 2015, a Gallup poll showed that 47% of our city never goes to church, which is actually very high for the state of Florida. I think the overall average in Florida was like 35% say they never go to church. But in our city, in Orlando, 47% say they never go to church. Not on Easter, not on Christmas. That's almost half the people. That means when you're driving around the city, every other car you pass by, that person will probably never set foot in church this year. That equals a million people, at least a million people. So it seems accurate to me based on the 1.8 million people in our city who aren't connected to any church and the over a million people who say they never go to church. It seems accurate for me to say that at least a million people in our neighborhood don't know they matter to God. Do you feel called to our city? Do you feel like you've been sent here? Do you say, I'm here because this is the most strategic place for me to be a Christian? Or do you say, I'm going to get what I can from this place and then move on? If you are here and you aren't avoiding a call to Africa or China or some other place, then you have been called here. God has strategically placed you here. Remember last week as we looked at this story, Jesus intentionally said, essentially, by divine providence, this priest was brought to the man by the wayside. By divine providence, you have been brought to this city where at least a million people don't know Jesus. Our city is the third largest in Florida and the 26th largest in the nation. Tim Keller, a a pastor in New York City, an author who advocates for Christians moving into cities, says that God loves cities more because there's more image uh, image of God per square foot in a city. There's at least a million people in our city who don't know they were created in the image of God, who don't know that they were created with dignity and beauty with the intent of displaying compassion and generosity and self-sacrifice and purity and integrity, there's at least a million people in our city who don't really know what they were built for. There's at least a million people in our city who don't know that the God we worship at Summit has a plan for the true city beautiful. A city where there is no racial divide, where police officers aren't killed in the line of duty, where pulse doesn't happen, 
that, that there is a God who is, who is building a city where there is no more tears or death or mourning, where all sad things come untrue. That there's a God who's making all things new. At least a million people in our city don't know that God. There's at least a million people in our city who are by the wayside. So what does that do to you? Does it fire you up? Does it make you feel indifferent? Are you heartbroken? Have you been inviting people to church? Part of our vision is to reach lost people. And, and again, if you're not a Christian, so we want to reach you, okay? And I'm sorry we call you lost, but that's what the Bible calls you. And so we want you to get it. And when we try not to use gimmicks here and we try um, not to do a whole lot of uh, you know, big events that, that get people in, our, our main form of living out that part of our vision is you. Is you inviting your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and your family. Tomorrow morning, you will be in places that I won't be that those of us who work at the church aren't. You will encounter the million far easier than I will. The other night I was out um, with some people who I didn't really know um, who I could tell don't trust the church. And when, uh, when they asked me what I did, I sheepishly said, uh, I'm a pastor. And, uh, and, and they kind of laughed because of the way I said it because it sounded like I was admitting some great character flaw. Um, but... Uh, but you know what happened after I said it? They kind of stopped engaging me. There are people that you are able to reach that I never will simply because of my title. A recent study by the Barner Group discovered that 80% of people who don't attend church said that they would go to church if a trusted friend invited them. So going back to the number of people who aren't connected to any church, 1.8 million in our city, that means that there are 1.4 million people in our city just waiting to be invited. 1.4 million. When was the last time you extended an invitation to church? It's not as hard as you think. And in fact, the data shows that. You heard about the At Work series that's coming up on Monday nights um, where, where businessmen and women are going to come and share about how their call, God's call on their life, includes their work. And I hope you'll make the effort to be there. Maybe invite your coworkers. Because when you leave here on Sunday and go to work on Monday, the real work of your call begins. Sunday is a day of rest. Sunday is a day where you are to be refreshed and encouraged, and challenged, and built up. You aren't called to Sunday. You're called to Monday. Again, one, at least one million people. I'm about to start the Reconstructing Evangelism class in a few weeks, and, and again, I would love for you to take that class. It's designed to help us see how evangelism is really just telling our story. Your story told truthfully is good news for others. So if you aren't inviting because you're worried about what you'll say or how to say it, come take the class. But you know what the key is to, to inviting without hesitation? Grace. 
You know who are, who are the people who, who can't help but tell people about Jesus? It's the people who, who've just gotten grace. As I was reading the, the parable all week, uh, like I encouraged all of us to do, I kept thinking of the, the Samaritan woman by the well that Jesus ran into. It's found in John 4, but um, Jesus is at this well. It's the middle of the day, and this woman comes to the well all by herself. And, and that was weird. Like, women didn't go to the well by themselves. Um, she was by herself because she was a shamed woman. She was a hated woman. She was gossiped about. She didn't have any friends, so she comes there alone. And Jesus and her start having a conversation. And Jesus kind of begins to tell her who he is. And this is something that he hadn't really done, even for his disciples at this point. But he begins to kind of show himself to this woman. He begins to talk about living water and how he can give her living water. And, uh, and, and you, as you read the story, you kind of get the sense that she's flirting a little bit with Jesus. And then Jesus catches her. He exposes her and, and he says, hey, why don't you go get your husband and, and then I'll explain more to you. And the woman, knowing uh, that the reason she feels shame is because of her past and her relationships with men, says, I don't have a husband. She kind of tries to stop the conversation. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're now sleeping with is not your husband. He looks at her and he says, you know what? I knew that about you. I knew all that about you before I even started talking to you. And I still came after you. See, when, when we have Jesus say to us, I know everything about you. I know all about your past. I know all about your struggles. I know everything. And I still love you. That changes us. We're told that this woman immediately went back to her town and said, hey, you got to come meet this guy. You, got, you meet this guy who told me everything I ever did and still loved me. And then we're told that many people in that town believed in Jesus because of the testimony of this one woman. And these people, this was in Samaria, these people were Samaritans. These were the enemies. The most unlikely people believed in God because this woman just shared her story of grace. Grace is the only way we measure up to what we were built for. To love God, to love neighbor completely all the, all the time. It's impossible any other way. At the end of the passage um, is sad to me because even though the lawyer gives the right answer, um, my guess is he doesn't have the right response. Jesus asked him in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He got the answer right. But then Jesus sets him up to give the right response. In verse 37, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Now, there's a couple ways the lawyer could have responded. He could have responded by walking away sad, um, kind of like the rich young ruler. Remember when this rich young ruler comes to see Jesus and he asked Jesus the same question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus essentially says, uh, after, after he's mentioned the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, um, the, the, the rich young ruler says, well, I've done that. And, and he says, okay, well, give away all your wealth to the poor and just come and follow me. Just trust me. And we're told that the rich young ruler walks away sad because he had much wealth. So that's one way. 
This man, this lawyer could have walked away sad because what was being asked of him was too impossible. Or he could have walked away determined to love God and love people all the time. But that's the wrong response too. Because it would mean he didn't really understand what Jesus was saying was required. See, Jesus, like any good teacher, sets the lawyer up to give not only the right answer, but the right response. The only response should be, my solutions to this problem aren't enough. I can't do what's required on my own. I cannot love the way I was built to love. Have mercy on me. And Jesus would have said to him, as he will say to us every time, of course, of course I will. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. Remember what I said to remember? This whole account between this lawyer and Jesus was illustrating something to us about faith. That we can't earn it. That it's not about obtaining something through our hard work and our hard effort. That it really is all about grace. Hebrews 13, 9, it is good that the heart be established by grace. And if our heart is established by grace, we can go out to that million or 1.8 million and see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you for our city. Father, there are people in our city right now who are searching for things that ultimately will lead to death. There are people who are hopeless in our city who have no idea that there is hope to be found. And Father, so often we keep it to ourselves. Forgive us. Forgive us as a church for not looking and seeing those that are by the wayside right next to us. Father, I pray that this week you would open up opportunities for us to actually see our neighbors. Give us the courage to invite. Father, we know that we have been loved simply by your grace. That means you will will love anybody. Father, make us people who are established by grace. And we pray all of this in the one who showed us mercy's name, Jesus. Amen.